0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. There is something of a flower farming revolution sweeping across our country, and I for one am all for it. A few months back, Cultivating Place was joined by Deborah Prinsing, the founder of the aptly named Slow Flowers, an American-grown flower movement in the floral industry. This week, we're joined by Aaron Benzacane, the name and face behind the beautiful and impassioned Florette Flower Farms, based in the Skagit Valley of Washington State. Florette is at the heart of encouraging and educating would be flower farmers on the whens, whys, and hows of getting started and making a go of this new again small farm based industry, which is rooting itself across the country and even around the globe. Erin's new book, The Cut Flower Garden, aimed at new and beginning flower farmers, is out this month from Chronicle Books. She joins us today via Skype from her farm. Welcome, Erin. Thanks so much for having me. As far as I can tell, having now read the book and enjoyed learning about your work and your passion, it all starts with Grammy. Tell us a little bit about Grammy, Erin.
1: Oh, Grammy, I wish you could meet her. Um, So I was a city kid and was a tortured city kid. I always wanted to live in the country. And my great grandparents lived in Walla Walla, which is about a six hour drive from Seattle where I grew up. And so every summer we would get to go to Grammy's house and spend part of the summer there. And when she was still in good health and younger she was a legend she lived on a dairy farm and she had a garden that they say she brought in one wheelbarrow load of soil at a time and built up this garden in the middle of the desert in nevada and everyone talked about how beautiful this space was when i got to know her when i was little she really was pretty much bedridden and just had a few of the plants left from her old garden that she had transplanted in her new home But all we did, we'd rip magazine pictures out of um, and glue them together, talk about flowers. She'd send me out to the garden with her old orange-handled scissors to go pick bouquets. Um, And she's really the one that planted the love of flowers in me from as far back as I can remember.
0: Tell us about your move into gardening life and what brought you to your current home and garden in the Skagit Valley, which, of course, is one of the famed flower growing regions of our country.
1: Yeah. Well, it was, a, we're, we're lucky to ho- call this beautiful valley home. So we were living in Seattle. We had just had my daughter, Alora, and I was trying to figure out like, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to be when I grow up? Um, I knew I loved gardening. I was already doing landscape design and installation in the city and just had this like deep stirring in my soul that like we have to go we have to go now we have to get out of the city we need to spread out i need a little plot of land Um, And we started looking for places just on the fringes of the city. We couldn't find anything that we could afford. So we went a little further and a little further. And after a year of looking, we finally found this funky old house with an acre of land, um, which is our current home now. And we transplanted ourselves. We wanted to get out of that fast-paced, busy life and reconnect with nature and have chickens and grow a vegetable garden and let our kids run around naked and make mud pies. And so we left the city and, and moved here.
0: You move to the Skagit Valley. You
1: have an acre at that point. Describe then the next step. Grammy was still alive at that point, and she was really, her health was declining. And when we got word, we went over there as a family, and she got to hold a Laura, who was just a baby at the time. And Grammy passed away, and that was a real turning point moment for me was heartbreaking. And after she passed, I was able to bring some of her ashes home with me. And my great grandfather had passed a few years before and I was able to bring some of his ashes. I planted them both. I put them in my new garden that we had just tilled up and I had planted sweet peas over the top of where their ashes were in memory of them. And those sweet peas bloomed so abundantly. I mean, really, I don't know if I've ever grown a crop that has been like that since. And I filled our house and the smell of them reminded me of her. And it was like this good good luck omen that she was with me. And so I filled our house, I gave them away. I made friends with all the neighbors. Like I was just sharing and sharing and sharing flowers. And really from there, it started to snowball. People found out that I was growing things. They started ordering stuff. Um, At one point, a woman ordered a $5 mason jar bouquet of sweet peas, and I drove 45 minutes. (laughs) I was so nervous. I had the kids buckled into their car seats. I was trembling. I knock on the door of this big fancy housing development. I thrust the bouquet into her hands, and I was trying to just run to my car. And she took this big sniff. She starts bawling, starts telling me about her childhood summers with her grandmother. Then I'm bawling, telling her about Grammy. And it was like in this moment, these two we were perfect strangers and just knocked on this woman's door. And we were instantly connected. Like all of our defenses were gone. And it was like this heart connection within a matter of seconds. And that's when it occurred to me. Flowers had the power to cut through all of the BS and get to the heart of the matter. Mm-hmm. And it was, I wanted to do something with that with, for the rest of my life.
0: And that story, which is in the introduction to, to your book, The Cut Flower Garden, it's a beautiful moment in the introduction. It's beautiful the way you just told it. And it catapulted you into this position you're in now. First of all, I want to step back just a tiny bit and talk about this idea of a cut flower garden. Because mm-hmm. it, is, it is not a new idea. It has been part of gardening history, but it kind of went away for a while. Talk a little bit about that history and, and why this was such an incredible moment for you to come onto this scene. Yeah, so back, I mean, before everything was being transported,
1: you know, by trains and trucked in and now flown in from all over the world, every flower shop had a couple of greenhouses out the back door and a, a patch of flowers growing right there. So people that were selling flowers um, and delivering them, they were actually growing them. And so they were part of that seasonal shift as things got, you know, just like with produce, you know, when you're shipping in lemons and oranges and bananas and things from all over the world out of season at any time of the year, the floral industry really followed suit to the point where in this day and age, I mean, a lot of floral designers do not know what like where a rose actually comes from or what a carnation looks like with the leaves still on Mm -hmm. connected to the plant. And so there's been this huge disconnection. Um, And when I was really trying to learn how to grow cut flowers, I had to go way back. Usually we're going to books from England. I mean, that's really where you can find stuff, but, way, way back trying to find information on how to use things that you would normally be growing in your garden and, and how to, you know, grow them and, and harvest them and arrange with them. But really, there's been this huge blank spot of time where uh, it's been forgotten about. And in the last, I'd say in the last five years, but really in the last three, there is this groundswell of deep passion in people wanting to reconnect with nature. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like flowers are sort of the last frontier, vegetables first, and then pasture-raised meat and eggs and
0: honey and fiber and flowers have just, it's been so slow to catch on. And I think Deborah Princing mentioned this as well in our conversation, is this idea that flowers are an indulgent luxury they are yep. a non necessity and that they're super expensive and no, none of those things are true that connection you made with that woman over those sweet peas is absolutely as nourishing as a big cup of soup exactly you know,
1: flowers it, are really food for the soul for the yeah. heart i mean they yeah like you they are they are a luxury but they um, yeah because you don't need them to survive but i might argue that like mm-hmm. i don't know if i could go on if i didn't have flowers in my life like they bring such a connection to nature
0: and so much magic into the everyday life once you're hooked you you just, there's no going back so the book absolutely as a home gardener i live on a postage stamp i'm reading this book thinking okay i can do this i could be a flower yeah. farmer and and that's not really realistic and that's okay that's good we're not all going to be flower farmers but It had a lot of information that was very useful to me. I have generations of gardeners behind me, and I learned things in this book that were useful to me. The book is based around what is now your current, you know, farm and garden. Describe the space you're in and how it kind of evolved to where it is now as a a working, living, growing space.
1: Okay, so when I finally, like when I was fit by the flower bug, I came home after that $5 jar of sweet peas, and I like tore out all the vegetables and filled the garden with flowers. Like I have got to do more of this. And then that fall, I dug out the whole orchard that we had just planted and I gave them all the trees away. I got rid of all my chickens. I had over a hundred chickens. Um, and I just kept tilling up more and more of our lawn and added a greenhouse. And the next year I added two more greenhouses and just kept expanding. And so really the first couple of years I was gardening on about a fourth or a sixth of an acre. So not a ton, like a really like a generous backyard. Mm -hmm. And then my neighbors who were right behind me had this big horse pasture that they had turned into a soccer field. And as their kids were getting older, they were using it less and less. And I saw the husband out there mowing and he was always cursing and then lawnmower (laughs) would break. And like, he was so frustrated trying to maintain this huge plot of grass. So I went over there with a bunch of hundred dollar bills. I'm like, please, please, please (laughs) let me rent this field. And his lawnmower had just died that day. Like it just stopped running and he was so angry and he's like, fine, you can have it. So I've been renting their soccer field ever since. So um, we grow in total, like with the square footage that is in production, only two acres. So we have a thriving flower farm. We service, oh gosh, it's like 22 or 24 Whole Foods stores a whole slew of wedding and event florists, our local wholesaler, all of those guys out of two tiny acres. So even if you have a little backyard, you can grow so much more than you think you can. People come from all over the world to take our workshops to see exactly how we did it, which it's all shared in the book. I mean, it really is feeding the plants, taking care of your soil, tight plant
0: spacing, and then succession planting, Erin Benzikane is the name and face behind the Florette Flower Farms, based in Mount Vernon, Washington. A driving force behind a beautiful revolution of small-scale, high-intensity, and organic flower farms, Erin has been sharing with us some of the inspiration behind her start on this path. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. The concept of growing flowers for cutting, whether for the home or on a commercial scale, is not a new concept, but it is a concept and way of life that waxed and waned in the course of the 1900s. With a whole new passion and purpose behind it, the idea of the cut flower garden is rooting itself ever more deeply once again across the United States. And while there are many good proponents of this movement, Few are more visible than Aaron Benzicane, the face and force behind Florette Flower Farms in Washington State's famed Skagit Valley. We're back after a break. Welcome. At some point, you made a decision that Mm -hmm. you weren't just going to be a flower farmer. You know, you came to some branch and you said, "I am going to educate and I'm going to mentor other people." to the greatest extent that I possibly can. Talk about that decision-making point that you then branched into running these really fabulous workshops where people come home from them just lit up about the opportunity and possibility of life. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, Well, it started, I've always,
1: because it was so hard for me when I was first starting to find information about how to do things. I mean, the internet wasn't what it is now. You couldn't just Google stuff, not Mm -hmm. like that. Like all um, the archives weren't there. And the books that I could find were very obscure. They were old texts. Um, So putting together enough information to actually successfully learn how to farm on a small scale and not using chemicals, it was almost impossible. So I decided that if I ever had anything I could share with anyone else, I would gladly share it. So I started blogging and then I started writing a monthly farming article for growing for market, just sharing the process, like what Mm -hmm. I was learning, the things that were succeeding. So just wanting to, I'd been mentored by some really generous people. And then just in that tradition, just kept passing it forward. And really the, the in-person teaching, that was, I went kicking and screaming into that. I am such an introvert. I am very, very shy. I mean, I don't even like to go to the grocery store. So the thought of opening our farm up to all these people and bringing them here, like no way. That was my answer. Um, And a friend of mine, Jenny Love and I, we had this, this dare that we did. We started a blog and it was, um, we each made a seasonal bouquet Every week from our gardens, we both posted on the blog and shared what the ingredients were. And it started to really get a following. And Jenny said, if this thing is a success and if people find it useful, will you promise me that you will come to Philadelphia and we will teach one workshop, just one? Like, absolutely not. Nobody's going to like this. Nobody's (laughs) even going to read this blog. And I'm definitely not going to do it, but like, fine. Cause I thought it wasn't going to work. Well, oh, it worked. <laughs> we mm-hmm. had this big old following. And so we opened up one workshop, which sold out in a couple of hours. And then we opened up a couple more and we, they sold out within hours. And, um, oh my gosh, I was so nervous, but it was less scary because Jenny and I were doing it together. But that's really when I realized what a need there was for, Uh, that in-person learning to be able to Mm -hmm. see it with your own eyes, like not just an article or just a blog post, but that hands-on learning. And, and from there, um, things just snowballed. I mean, we've opened our farm. I think it will be, we'll be going on like our 26th workshop this year. I mean, it's only been four seasons and it's, it's crazy how many people have come and learned with us in that time.
0: And so how many workshops a year do you have? This year, we,
1: we scaled back just to give ourselves some space because we're working on a new project. I really want to be able to film some of this stuff, knowing how few people can actually travel to the farm. So this mm-hmm. year, we're just doing four workshops. Mm-hmm. Last year, we did seven, okay. um, and they're, they're three days long. And for us, it's about a two-week process from start to finish to yeah. get everything together. So they're a real undertaking. I mean, they are a, the goal is that everyone who comes will leave changed, yeah. and that's a big, that's a big undertaking.
0: I, I love when you have a new class come out of one of your workshops because you have this amazing like influx of, of photographs of of flowers and, and garlands and table sets. And it's just it's it's pretty magical, Erin, even it from is. a distance. <laughs>
1: so, um, it's an incredible life change. I mean, every time we go through it. I'm changed. Our team has changed. And everyone that comes, so many breakthroughs and so many people who have been really sitting on the sidelines of their life, really wanting to jump in and do what they want. They don't even know maybe what that is yet. Right. But when they come here with us, they're, it's such a safe environment. And it's so beautiful. You just drop your guard immediately. And we turn them loose on the farm and we try all these things. And I, it's, it is
0: incredible. The book is structured very specifically around what a year on the farm is for you as a grower and an arranger and a teacher.
1: Yeah, so the first part of the book really is the foundation, like it's the basics. So we're going, it's all about how to have success starting your own seeds, how to prepare your soil. I mean, even if that's a couple of containers or it's a couple of rows or a whole field. It's the the foundational pieces, how to get the most out of your cut flowers once you pick them and, and extend their life. And then from there we step into each season, starting with the spring, and I'm sharing the general tasks and chores and things that you're gonna be wanting to know about and and be doing during those seasons and then explaining each of them and how you do them and then we follow through spring so we start with I think it's daffodils and then we go into tulips and ranunculus so in spring we're then exploring a number of different plant families and I'm sharing my favorite varieties Mm -hmm. why they're wonderful what the best varieties to grow are how to grow them and then how to get the most base life out of them and then at the end of each um, seasonal chapter there's three different um flower arranging projects using the flowers that we grew. So it really takes you on this beautiful journey. Even if you live in an apartment in the city, just the beautiful pictures are enough. Like you don't have to grow anything. So there, but it really, my hope is that it gives you the tools and the foundational information that you need, but then it is so beautiful and so down to earth that you uh, get over any hesitation or fear that you might have and just give it a whirl. Like, just grow some
0: cosmos from seed. It's really not that hard. Like just go for it. Right. So and yeah. and the instructions are incredibly detailed and they start as though you are I mean a staunch beginner from you know the tools that you need, a discussion of different seed trays, a a step by step how to make a wreath or a head garland, the detail level was very accessible no matter where you are in your gardening or flower growing life. I was really appreciative of the emphasis over and over again on taking care of your soil, of running it organically and taking care of your soil.
1: Oh, good, good.
0: Now, as you go through the seasons, you have some very nice kind of pull out elements to the book, including the different kinds of plants to consider. And you kind of start with all the spring bulbs and corms and tubers, the hardy annuals, the tender annuals, the perennials, the flowering shrubs, the flowering trees, the fruiting and foliage, and the vines. And One of the things that I thought was really interesting was the emphasis you place on the balance between what you want. If you want a mix that will be useful to you over the course of a year, there's a certain balance you want to strike. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So depending on where you are in your journey, I mean, if you're just starting out and you just have a little bit of ground, starting with really easy and cheap annuals, stuff from seed is the best way to go. I consider them the training wheels of the cutting (laughs) garden. Um, But then depending on how how crazy you want to get, incorporating bits from each of those plant groups. So you have some bulbs. Those are really the stars of the spring. And then you have shrubs and trees that give you the great foliage and the beautiful blossoms. And really pulling from each of the plant groups gives you this incredible rainbow of harvest and abundance throughout the whole season. And then for me to be able to make an arrangement really anytime you walk out the back door, Most people, I think where the real downfall is, is they just plant flowers, just Mm. the, the blossoms, like they're only planting the focal blooms and they're not really thinking about the ingredients it takes to make a great arrangement. And for us here, always our, um, like rule of thumb is at least 50% of everything that we plant is some type of foliage. So half of our garden is in interesting textures and greens, whether it's vines or, um, I mean, it can be basil or or nasturtium vine, but really so that you have this beautiful backdrop to then nestle your flowers
0: in when you go to make a finished arrangement. That was a really surprising proportion to me. I actually underlined it and wrote it down in my notebook, 50-50, which mm-hmm. is sort of, if you think about it, you know, a standard home garden. I want to get to this sense of generosity. There is this generosity of of plant life if you care for the soil, and there is this generosity of spirit that you put into this book. What are your hopes for where this book will go and what it will bring to people who, you know, may or may not be interested in following a journey of small-scale high-intensity flower farming?
1: Well, I believe like deep in my core and I've learned it over and over in the garden that you get back what you put in or you reap what you sow. And I have been so blessed with so much abundance and generosity that's been passed from one generation down to me. And so many people who have opened up their doors or pulled the curtain back or shared growing tips or business advice or, you know, just life um, lessons with me that I know how what a what a game changer that can be and so have practiced passing on whatever I know or whatever I've accomplished or figured out to the next person. So my hope is with this book that it will do two things. It will be it will cause a ripple effect that there's so much here. There's so like there's solid information, beautiful inspiration and that will really give a foundation that people can use that will ripple out into the world. And also that it will shine a spotlight on the local seasonal flower movement. I mean, it, it is taking hold in communities and gardens and on farms throughout the country and all over the world, but really that, um, that flowers become not as much a luxury and more of a necessity and that people start to recognize, um, what an incredible power they have to heal and bring joy and connect us with nature. So it's really those, those are my two hopes for the book.
0: And I want to point out as well that even though in the beginning you yanked out the orchard and you got rid of the chickens and you yanked out the vegetable garden, (sighs) in fact, all of those elements are part of this book ultimately. This idea of incorporating vegetables, incorporating, you know, flowering branches, and it's – it. You, you have beautiful um, pictures of incorporating ripe tomatoes, grapes on the vine, and then the gourds and the squashes at the end. It's a very full circle. It's not just flowers, which I, I think is an important thing to point out for people. In the book, you talk about this idea that there's this hunger out there for information. And you kind of referred to that in the response people have to coming to a workshop with you, what, what is that in this world of ours?
1: Oh, well, I think at least my experience has been there's sort of two two camps. Like there's the one where we believe in generosity and abundance and sharing and uh, ask anything and here's what I know. And then there's the other, there's like holding on to secrets and keeping things hidden and not really explaining how someone did something or how they arrived at that conclusion. And so um, really when people like I notice it through the blog or in workshops, the thing we hear over and over is, I can't believe you're giving us all this information. I can't believe you're sharing all this. Thank you for for sharing all of your struggles and your mistakes so that I don't have to make them too. I'm like, that's exactly what I want is for you to not have to make them too. So if I can, I mean, I know that the biggest reason that people stop or they quit is because it gets too hard. You know, once you make too many mistakes, you try to take it as a sign that maybe you're not meant to do this and you're, you're just supposed to quit. So my hope is that by sharing what, I, what I've what i learned and what I know and, and making it easier for people to do and just laying it all out there, if, if anything there is helpful for them, that they'll keep going because there's so much to be gained, um, by getting your hands in the dirt and connecting with nature and just being surrounded by beauty.
0: The book is gorgeous. The photos are beautiful. The photographer, Michelle Waite, did just a beautiful job capturing you and your spirit and your farm and all of the different instructional aspects of the book. But this is really long, hard work. You are up way before dawn in the summer and you go to bed way after sunset. Um, What are the challenges and how have you been able to push through them?
1: obviously. There seems like there's never enough time. So I wake up at 4.30 in the morning, always. It's the only way I can get that time I need before the day begins, before the crew arrives, before the sun is up. And then the day is long. And so, I mean, the beauty definitely feeds your soul so that you've got enough stamina, but it is exhausting work. But I would say the biggest challenge as a farmer and someone who works with nature is the weather. And the unpredictability. And you really have no control. Mm-hmm. You can try your best. You can do everything right. You can do everything to, you know, your very best invest in the soil and get the plant staked at the certain time and sow the seeds. And then a windstorm comes, like it happened to us about, I think it was two summers ago, flattened our entire dahlia patch. Mm. So we lost the rest of the harvest. I mean, that was a considerable amount of money, time, resource gone in a flash. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're working with nature, but you also have to surrender to nature. It definitely kind of rubs away all of the hard edges. <laughs> I mean, you really, you really realize how much you're uh, in collaboration and partnership, but you really ultimately have no control.
0: Thank you, Erin, for being with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Erin Benzikane is the name and face behind Florette Flower Farms based in Mount Vernon, Washington. A small-scale, intensive flower farm, host to flower farmer workshops, a line of seeds and plants, and now a new book, The Cut Flower Garden, from Chronicle Books, out this month. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. My conversation with Erin went close to an hour. For this week's audio archive and audio extra, with Erin walking us through her techniques for extending the vase life of almost any cut flower, branch, or fruit, visit mynspr.org. For more information on Erin and Florette, including many photos, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.